Father, that is such a simple song and a simple truth, but it's one that we need this morning. Lord, you know who we are. You know our weaknesses. You know our sins. You know our suffering. You know the burdens that are carried in this room today. Lord, our great need is to see Christ. We pray that you would give yourself to us once again. We're confident that you will. You've already done so with the cross, and so we have every reason to think that you will come to us now and meet us with your grace. Lord, we need your help this morning to set aside the cares and concerns of the world, um, the discouragements, the distractions that we may carry with us. And Lord, we, we want to see Jesus. We want to understand the word. We pray that you would draw near to us right now as we are seeking to draw near to you. And we pray that in your kindness, you would revive us, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would uh, deepen our joy and our love for Christ as we consider uh, the glorious good news of the gospel, this amazing plan of love and grace that you would send your son to save us, that you would draw us into your family, that you'd give us the great privilege of participating in your mission. So Lord, we pray for your help in this moment, that you would fix our eyes on Christ and open your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text of scripture for this morning will be from Luke chapter 10. You can open to Luke chapter 10, and we're probably going to get through verse 16 is the goal today. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. The call to follow Jesus, a call that we've seen in Luke's gospel, is a call that begins with faith. Believing that Jesus is who he says he is. That's what faith is, right? It's believing that Christ is who he says he is, the Son of God. And it's believing in what Jesus has done. Trusting in his death and his resurrection. Believing that his gospel is true. That's what faith is. It's embracing that historical reality as the basis for our salvation. The call to follow Jesus starts with faith. But that's not the end of the Christian life. That's actually just the beginning. Faith in Jesus leads to following Jesus. It's a new life of walking with Christ, learning from him. And this isn't always easy. As we've seen in Luke's gospel, we've looked at the reality of opposition. There's a cost to following Jesus. We see that at the end of chapter 9. It's not always easy. There's some hard truths there. There is a cost. But at the same time, the next section that we have here in chapter 10 doesn't necessarily warn us of the cost as much as encourage us with some of the privileges of following Christ. There's actually a lot of joy in the next section. You see, part of the joy of following Jesus is we get the privilege of participating with him in his mission. We see a growing emphasis on this participation with Christ Throughout Luke's gospel, it starts early on in Luke as Jesus says to Simon, Peter, he says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. See, when Jesus calls Peter to follow him, to set aside his nets and to walk away from the boat, he's inviting him to a new job, a new task, a new calling, to participate with Christ in doing what he's doing, which is seeking to save sinners. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, we saw that Jesus has previously sent out the 12 disciples. He commissions them as apostles and tells them to go preach and gives them spiritual power and authority. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. This, this emphasis on participation with Christ is growing. And now in chapter 10, we see that it's not just the 12 who participate with Jesus in spreading the gospel and telling people about the good news of salvation through Christ. The circle is widening and even more are being invited to join the task as Jesus is going to send out 72 others on a special mission to proclaim the good news. The simple point this morning is that Jesus calls us to the great privilege of participating in his mission. That's part of your calling and my calling as a follower of Jesus. Our faith in Jesus results in following Jesus, which means we participate with Jesus in the mission that he is about. Look with me in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. 
We know that Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 43. He says, I have to go on to other towns to preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. He says, I was sent for this purpose. And now he's recruiting others to join him in that effort. It's Peter. It's the 12. But now we see that he's sending out even more. Now, if you're using the English Standard Version, which is what I'm preaching from this morning, um, or if you have the, the New International Version, the NIV, or maybe the NET, your Bible says that he sends out 72 others, but some of your Bibles may say 70. So I just want to make a quick comment on that so it doesn't cause any uh, confusion. If you have the King James Bible or the New American Standard, yours might say 70 instead of 72. And the reason is that there's actually a textual difficulty here. Our New Testament in English is translated from these uh, old Greek manuscripts that have been dug up and recovered and, and collected from across the Middle East. And some of those old manuscripts say 72, and some of them say 70. And it's about a 50-50 split. We're really not sure which is the original reading. Scholars are divided on which number was the one that Luke actually wrote, and which one was, was a, a copyist's error along the way. And people are also just as evenly divided on the significance of that number. And we could spend time speculating on why did Jesus send out, whether it's 70 or 72, what's the significance of that number? Some people think maybe this corresponds to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. If you go back to Genesis 10, there's one of those lists of names that's telling us the heads of all of these nations in the early world. Some people think maybe Luke is trying to show that the gospel is supposed to go to all the nations. It's possible. Others have suggested that this number of 70 or 72 corresponds to the elders of Israel because in Numbers chapter 11, we find that Moses is helped by this group of 70 elders that are appointed to help him lead the nation. Maybe Jesus is doing something that corresponds with that in his mission to Israel. Others have said, well, the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling body, had 70 members. Maybe, maybe this is Jesus providing an alternative spiritual voice uh, to be an authority for the people in place of that Jewish religious system that had become corrupted. Or it could be none of the above. It could just be that 70 or 72 is a good round number, and there's actually no symbolism. I'm kind of partial to that view. I don't think we have to read too far into it because the focus in this passage, and where we're going to spend our time this morning, is not on the number of people that are sent out. The focus is on what Jesus says to them. The focus is on their mission and ours. And that mission is to be shaped by Jesus' instruction. That's what we want to focus on this morning. How does Jesus instruct this group of people in their mission? And therefore, how is he instructing us as well? What does he have to say to us as a church today? For us as followers of Jesus that are called to go like this group and to tell people about Jesus like this group I want to share four insights into the mission that Christ gives us. And the first insight we find in verse 2. And he said to them in verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first insight into our mission is that the mission requires laborers. So pray. The mission requires laborers, therefore we must pray. Now, we live in the Midwest. I grew up here in Kansas. This is the breadbasket of America. We have big farms. We have cornfields. We have wheat fields. We have milo. We have soybeans. We have all kinds of stuff. But our harvests today, and harvest is going on right now. If you drive a little bit outside of our city, you'll see that. Harvests today aren't accomplished by a whole bunch of day laborers using their bare hands. Bare hands. Usually it's one guy in a combine. And maybe nowadays he doesn't even have to be in the combine. You can control it. It's all computerized, right? GPS and software. It's an amazing thing. So harvest time today is really not a group project. But in the first century it was. Everything was done by hand. And if you didn't get the crops gathered in in time, you risked losing that whole year's labor. You risked losing that profit. You put yourself at a danger for financial hardship, but often even physical hardship, would you make it through the winter? So laborers for the harvest were essential. And seasonal work meant you had to harvest, uh, you had to hire hands for the harvest every year. And this is the, the metaphor that Jesus is using when he talks about the ministry of the gospel. 
He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus' point is that there are many who need to hear. The harvest is souls. There's many who need to hear, and get this, there's actually many who are ready to hear. There's people out there that are ready, people that are eager, people that are open. There is a harvest. But the problem is we need more laborers. So what are we to do about this? Well, Jesus tells us we need to pray. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Notice whose harvest it is. It's his. It is his harvest, the text says. It's his gospel. It is his mission. And these are his people that he is planning to save. So we need to pray that he would send out more servants. I think we often hear this verse brought up in a context of having to do with trying to get more Christians involved with sharing the gospel. And that is a great application of this truth. It's true. There are too many Christians that sit on the sideline who do not share their faith. That's true. And we ought to pray that God would call more Christians to bear witness to Christ. We ought to pray that God would call more Christians to answer the call to pastoral ministry or to church planting or foreign missions. But I also think there's an additional sense here to what Jesus is saying that's often overlooked. Look at the situation Jesus describes. He says, the laborers are few. Now think about it. In, in reality, all of us are laborers. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are already an employee in that sense of the Lord of the harvest. You already have a connection to him. You've already been given a job to do and we're supposed to be doing it. Maybe some of us do a poor job. Maybe some of us do okay. So you might not be a great laborer, but we as believers are laborers already. So what's really needed is, is an expansion of the workforce. We need more laborers, more people who believe the gospel, more people who've experienced the transforming power of the gospel and therefore are able and available to actually share the gospel with others. We are to pray that God would expand the workforce of people who can proclaim the gospel. And here's the thing, only God can do that. Only God can expand the workforce. So we should pray that he will do that. Pray that the Lord would send out more laborers. This is not just about guilting Christians into doing more. I think this text directs us to pray, to pray to the sovereign Lord of the harvest and ask him to call, to save, to raise up and to send more laborers. You see, salvation is ultimately God's doing. And we're to pray that God would save sinners. Look over just a few verses later in verse 21 and 22. This is Jesus. It says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and, on, and, and earth. There's that idea of sovereign authority. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus says, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It is God's will to reveal himself to some. Verse 22, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The sovereign Lord of the harvest is the only one who can expand the workforce. He's the only one who can call and equip and raise up and send out more laborers. And when we recognize the need for the gospel in our world, when we recognize that the harvest is full and ready and vast, but there's not enough laborers, Jesus says the first thing we do is hit our knees and ask God to save more so that there's more of us to go out and share that gospel. Salvation is ultimately God's doing. He's the one who opens eyes. He's the one who reveals the truth. So we should ask him to do that. Ask him to do that. If we want to see a harvest, not only do we need to share the gospel, yes, but we also need to pray. Prayer is the essential engine of the Great Commission. It runs on prayer. And he calls us to pray. I've often been convicted by the thought, you know, if God were to say yes to all of my prayers over the last month for people to be saved, if he were just to say yes today, 
My prayers over the last four weeks, how many people would be added to the kingdom? Two or three? Five or six? Why not 50? Why not more? Are we praying that the Lord would save people, that he would bring more laborers into the fold so that together we can go out and seek to work in God's fields? Jesus recognizes the scope of the need. He recognizes the scope. The harvest is plentiful. He also recognizes the challenge. The laborers are few. So what does he tell us to do? He says, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's the mission we've been given. The mission requires laborers, so pray. There's a second insight into this mission that he gives us in verse 3. Look in verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Can you imagine being part of that group of 70 and Jesus calls you together? And he says, I've got a job for you to do. You better pray. That's where it starts. And by the way, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What's Jesus teaching us here? I think the point is that the mission is risky. So we have to trust him. The mission is risky and it requires trust. It requires trust. We have to trust him, first of all, for protection. Lambs are small. Lambs have no horns. Lambs have no teeth. Lambs have no claws. I mean, they have teeth, but they're not the teeth that can do a lot of damage. Lambs can't fly. Lambs can't really run that fast for that long. They don't hide very well, which means they're vulnerable to predators. They're lambs, especially pack hunters like wolves. What Jesus is telling this group of people and what we know as well, both from church history and, and perhaps even from experience, is we go into a world that the world is hostile towards the gospel. And the mission of the gospel has risks. We have spiritual adversaries. The devil himself prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's false teachers out there. There's those that would distort the true gospel. There's those that would draw away genuine believers and deceive them and enslave them with false teaching. There's ideological enemies. There's people out there that believe me and you as Christians are actually what's wrong with the world. And that people like us need to be minimized, eliminated, silenced. That we should have no influence on society. We have ideological enemies. There's corrupt systems that are in place in our world that are hostile to the gospel. That's the world we live in. Jesus says, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So how can we possibly go out as lambs and fulfill our mission if it's really that dangerous? Only if we have a good shepherd to watch over us. That's the key, right? Psalm 23 tells us the Lord is our shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Hebrews 13, verse 20, says that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. 1 Peter 5, 4 calls him the chief shepherd. So if you and I go out as lambs in the midst of wolves without Jesus, that can only end one way. But if we go out trusting in Jesus, if he is with us, if his power is in us, if his will protects and guards us, then we actually can go out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Our source of confidence as we go into a hostile and dangerous world isn't our own toughness. It's not our own strength. It's not our own shrewdness. It's not, it's not anything in us. Our source of confidence, Christians, has to be in our shepherd. We trust him. And that's why we can go out into the world as dangerous and as hostile as it may be without fear and preach Christ. I love what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul knows it's dangerous. He says, not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Paul says, pray for us because it's dangerous out here, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is the one who protects. The Lord is the one who guides. The Lord is the one who guards. The Lord is the one who will establish us. So we have to trust God. As you, as you and I engage in this mission, as we participate in the task that God has called us to do, 
we have to pray, but we also have to trust God. We trust him for protection, but we're also called to trust him for provision. Look in verse 4. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. The money bag is what would have been used to take up collections. Jesus is saying, you won't need to raise funds. You're not out there to raise money and sort of pad, you know, your pocketbook so that you have, you know, an emergency fund. The mission of the gospel doesn't depend on our fundraising. God will provide. The knapsack would have been something that they could carry extra provisions with. But Jesus says, you don't need to take any. People will provide for you along the way as I move their hearts. So they didn't need to take any extra provisions. They didn't need to take an extra pair of sandals. They didn't need to be worried, well, well, yeah, I've got a good pair of sandals, but what happens if these wear out? Jesus says, trust me. Trust me to protect you, but also trust me to provide for you. These, this group of people were called to travel light and to trust God to provide for them. I think these are unique instructions. This doesn't mean it's wrong for you to have a second pair of shoes or, um, or, or anything like that, or that you shouldn't own a backpack. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's giving a very timely instruction to this group because as they went out, they were preaching a message that says, trust in God. And they're supposed to live a life that showed they were trusting in God. Their life was to point to the truth of the gospel that they were proclaiming. And so while we may have a backup pair of shoes or a backpack or things like that, we can learn from this that as we carry out our mission in obedience to Christ, we have to trust him to provide. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. He says, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to, added to you. We're, many of us are familiar with that text. We're, we probably think of it as sort of a, a generic instruction against worry and, and it is. Don't worry about things that are tomorrow. But Jesus ties this idea of trusting and refusing to be anxious. He ties it directly with a radical focus on the mission God has given us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. We are to have a radical focus on the task God has called us to do. We're to be about his business. We're laboring in his field. We're serving his mission. And if we are focused on that and, are, and we are devoted to that, we can trust God is going to meet our needs along the way. That's the point. If we're busy with the Lord's work, he's going to take care of us. I love what Paul writes in Philippians 4.19. He says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. So don't let anxiety, don't let concern with our own needs being met get in the way of us moving the gospel forward. This mission we are called to is risky, even dangerous, and there's going to be needs we face. But the simple point is we're called to trust in our master. The mission requires laborers, so we have to pray. The mission is risky. We're called to trust. There's a third insight into the mission. This mission is also very relational. It's relational, which means we need to engage with people. We have to engage with people. Look in verse 5. He says, whatever house you enter first, say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. There's a lot going on here, a lot of very specific instructions, but I want to pull out one very simple observation from all of that. Notice all of the language that Jesus uses about going into homes, about even receiving support from people, about eating meals at someone's table, about engaging with people in the streets. Their ministry, to make a very simple observation, requires engaging with people. I think this is something that's easily lost and forgotten for us today. You know, there's an aspect of the Christian life that is solitary. There's an aspect to the Christian life that is personal. 
It's you praying to God when you're alone. It's you studying God's word and meditating on it in private. It's personal worship as you praise God and worship him and thank him and pour out your heart before him. That is a necessary part of what it means to be a Christian. There is this personal private dimension to our Christian life. It's it's absolutely essential. But if your Christian life is confined to your personal experience, if it's only something that's in your own heart between you and God, then listen, you're stuck in first gear as a Christian He calls us to far more than that. The glory and the joy of the truths we have personally discovered, the truths that we have personally embraced, the experience of God's mercy and grace in our own heart, that personal experience is meant to be shared. The love that we've received from Christ that results in our love for Christ is supposed to spur us on to share the love of Christ with others. It might seem like common sense, but if we don't talk to people, if we don't go towards people, if we don't spend time with people, we aren't laboring in the field. The field is people, and we have to be with people. It doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or an introvert. It doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're busy or if you're bored. This is the mission we've been called to, and it requires that we engage with people. Really, we're just following the example of our Savior Jesus when we do this. I mean, isn't this what we see Jesus doing in the incarnation? Although he was exalted in glory, he was in heaven. He took on human flesh. He was born as a baby. He is called Emmanuel, God with us. He came to be where we are. He sought us out. As it says in Mark's gospel, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to seek and to save the lost. He came to reach us and to save us. That's the whole story of the incarnation. We also see that in Jesus' ministry. Although Jesus did at times pull away, although he would get up on the mountain alone through the night and pray to his father, although he withdrew into the garden of Gethsemane, at the same time, he's also calling the 12 disciples to be with him. Jesus is engaging with the needy. He's touching the sick and healing them. He's interacting with those that are desperate as they face crisis. Jesus is communicating with the crowds. He's teaching them. He's even feeding the crowds. And he's going from town to town because that's his purpose. That's why he came, because that's where the people are. So Jesus goes towards people. So as we participate with Christ in his mission, it means that we too have to, at some level, engage with people. And this is going to look different for all of us. We're all in different phases of life. Some of you are on campus at KU. You like sleep in the field where the harvest is. Like that's where you live. Some of you are stay-at-home moms and, and the field for you is those two little pagan toddlers that need to be saved. And they need to hear the gospel. For some of you, you're going to work every day. You're in an office. Some of you may be older and your opportunities to interact with people are more limited. But look, Jesus calls us to pray. You can always do that. And he also calls us to take advantage of whatever opportunity we have to connect with people. That will look different for everyone. The goal here is not to put a legalistic burden on you, that you need to radically change everything about your lifestyle. But I would just ask the simple question, what evidence is there in your life that you go towards people who need Christ? It's, it's got to be there at some level. The mission requires it. It's relational. We have to go towards people. There's a fourth insight into this mission, and this is perhaps even the most crucial. This is where we'll spend a little bit more time. Fourth insight into this mission is that it requires proclamation. It requires proclamation, which means we must preach his truth. You see, they're not just to go. They're to go with a message. They're to go with a message. They are given by Jesus, not just instructions on how to interact with people and how to figure out where to stay. And they're not just warned against, you know, sort of working the room and trying to find out who's going to give them the best meal. He also tells them the words they are to speak. He gives them truth to declare. Look at what he says in verse 5. We see the first aspect of this, that faithful gospel ministry offers peace. It offers peace It's a message of peace. Whenever you enter, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Jesus has a lot more in mind here than simply being respectful or polite. This is not just a a cultural nicety. He's instructing his messengers 
to be bearers of peace. To wish peace upon someone is to wish them well-being. It's this Jewish idea of shalom, of wholeness, of God's blessing. And listen, the gospel is good news of peace. It's good news of peace from God. Good news of peace with God. I mean, this is what the angels sang about on the night when Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. The coming of Jesus means an offer of peace. He comes actually to be our peace. As it says in the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 4, he shall stand, speaking of the Messiah, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Listen, those who share the good news of salvation in Jesus are offering peace with God to people who desperately need peace. Jesus comes to bring us peace, not by resolving the discrepancies in your checkbook, Not necessarily by removing your physical ailments and pains. Not by fixing all of your relationships with people around you. In fact, it might actually make it worse if you start following Jesus. The peace that Jesus brings us is peace with God. And that's the peace that matters. Jesus came to deal with our sins on the cross. To remove the hostility between sinful man and holy God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a declaration of fact. That is a declaration of reality. What happens when someone trusts in Jesus is they are declared righteous. They are granted this new status of being at peace with God because sin has been dealt with. God's wrath has been absorbed by Christ on the cross. Propitiation has been made. An acceptable sacrifice has been offered. And because of that, we don't no longer have to be God's enemies. We can be called his sons. We can be called his daughters. That is at the heart of the gospel. It is peace with God through faith in Christ, the shedding of his blood and his death on the cross. And while that message isn't fully developed yet, at this point in Luke's gospel, nevertheless, they come bearing good news and offer of Peace. It's an offer of peace. The gospel is a a message of peace, a kind of peace that, listen, cannot be found somewhere else. The peace that you are looking for, it cannot be found in personal success. Just ask the most successful people in the world. They're often miserable. Peace isn't found in personal success. The peace you're looking for cannot be found in the approval of another person, from a parent, from friends, from a certain social circle, from your children, from your grandchildren, that sort of validation from people will never give you the peace that you're longing for. The peace you're looking for can't be found in the bottom of a bottle. It can't be found in the arms of a lover. It can't be purchased with money. You can't achieve it in your own strength. It can't be found through learning or through travel or vacations, experiences, entertainment, pleasure, all of that. True peace only comes from God. And so as these messengers go out and they enter a house, they are to say, peace be to this house. And that peace is a loaded term because it's a peace that comes from God that ultimately can only be experienced through receiving Christ and receiving his gospel. We have the great privilege of sharing what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, the gospel of peace. Next time you get to share the gospel with someone, share with them this offer of peace with God. Faithful gospel ministry offers peace, but it also offers hope. It offers hope. Look at this message of hope in verses 8 and 9. It says, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is the message they're given to proclaim. The kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God refers to God's rule. 
And God's rule is, in one sense, both eternal and universal and unchanging. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. It's always been that way, and it always will be. There's no change to God's sovereign control over all of his creation. So in one sense, God's kingdom can refer to that that constant, eternal, universal rule. But there's another sense in which the rule of God is being brought to bear in the world. And it's through the work of Christ. And it's in this sense that they are to preach the kingdom. Not just that God is who he always has been. That he is in control and sovereign over all things. But specifically that God is doing something through his son Jesus. You see, ever since the fall of Satan and the sin of Adam, the world has been in rebellion against the rule of God. The kingdom of God has been resisted because of sin. But God is working out a plan through his son Jesus to restore sinners to himself, to triumph over the enemy, and bring his rule to bear in the world today. When we look around our world today, we don't see the kingdom of God established in full. We see wicked men ruling and reigning. We see lies, we see deception, we see corruption. The kingdom of God is not being brought to bear in its fullness yet. But one day it will be. The kingdom that Jesus wants them to preach about here is a program that includes the salvation of sinners and the restoration of God's people and the establishment of his rule in the earth, the the driving away of wickedness, the the destruction of his enemies, and an undoing of the effects of sin. That's why he, he gave them power unique to this mission to heal the sick. He says, heal the sick that are in it and declare to them the kingdom of God has drawn near. The fact that the effects of the curse, things like blindness, things like being lame, things like having leprosy, the fact that those things were being undone and healing was taking place was evident that the power of the kingdom had indeed drawn near to them, that God was at work he was right in their midst. He tells them to preach this good news that God hasn't given up on his world. He sent his son and his promises and his plans for his kingdom. That's unfolding. Now, for all of this to be fully accomplished, it's going to require the death of Jesus on the cross. It's going to require repentance of sinners to enter in. But this message of the kingdom is fundamentally good news for sinners and sufferers. It is good news that God isn't done with us yet. It's good news that Jesus is coming back. It's good news that the enemy will be destroyed and everything is going to be put right. That is good news that offers hope. So when we share the gospel, the message that God has given us is a message of hope. Yes, it's a message of peace with God, but it's a message that also brings this hope of the fullness of God's kingdom and the chance to enter in. Our message is not just telling the world that they need to adjust their morals. That's not the message. Our message is not just telling people, you need to be good, you need to be nice. That's not the gospel message. Our message is not even that they need to join our church or that they need to vote differently or that they need to agree with our doctrine. No, the message we're given is the proclamation of good news that salvation has come in Jesus, that he is the king and that the kingdom is coming and that all who repent of sin and trust in Christ can enter into that kingdom. That's the message. And that's a message of hope. The coming of Jesus and his kingdom is good news for those who receive it. But what are they supposed to do when people aren't interested in that good news? When peace is offered, when hope is announced, and when people turn away, when they will not set any food before them, when they will not welcome them into their homes, when they will not welcome them into their town, when they will not receive that message, what are they to do? What's the third aspect of this faithful gospel ministry, proclaiming the message he has given us? Faithful gospel ministry warns of judgment. Look in verse 10 through 12. When you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet We wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus instructs these people to declare a word of warning and a word of judgment. 
Wiping the dust off their feet would have been what many pious Jews would do after they walked through Gentile region, as if to not contaminate themselves with something that was unclean. So for these people to do that in a Jewish town was to basically treat them like spiritual outsiders, to say, you might be descended from Abraham, but you are not part of the people of God because you have rejected God's offer of good news. You've rejected his kingdom. And this marks them off for judgment. And they're even to declare it. The dust of our feet we wipe off against you. Notice what else they're to say. And the kingdom of God has come near. (laughs) Nevertheless, know this. Despite your rejection, despite the fact that you don't believe us, despite the fact that you are rejecting the message of Jesus, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom has come near because it's present in Jesus. Jesus represents God's rule. Jesus is the means of God's salvation. Jesus possesses the power of God as is seen in his miracles. So if they reject Jesus, they've missed the very kingdom of God in their midst. But whether or not they believe or not, that kingdom is coming. That is inevitable. Here's what's amazing. Whether people receive it or whether they reject it, the core message is the same. You see that? Whether people receive it They declare the kingdom of God has drawn near to you. If people reject it, the kingdom of God has drawn near to you. Listen, whether people receive us or reject us, the message that we are to proclaim at all times centers on Jesus Christ. It doesn't change. We don't change the message. We're not to tweak the message. We're not to edit or improve the message. We're not to take away from or add to the message. We preach Christ and him crucified. We preach the resurrection of Jesus. We preach the coming of his kingdom. It's an offer of salvation for all who believe and a warning of judgment to those who won't. The message doesn't change. That can't be said often enough. Jesus makes a sobering statement about the dire consequences of such a rejection. Verse 12, he says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. It's a statement of judgment that compares them to the notorious fate of Sodom. That town in Canaan, in the Old Testament, In the book of Genesis, we find that Lot and his family are rescued right before fire and brimstone falls from heaven and completely eradicates Sodom and Gomorrah and the region surrounding it. Sodom was a pagan city, a city that was infamous for its sexual immorality. But there were no prophets who ever came and preached in Sodom. There were no apostles who who taught there. There was no miracles done in their midst. There was no spiritual heritage of Judaism They had no access to the scriptures, and yet they were justly destroyed for their wickedness. So for a Jewish town, a people who should have known better, a people who had a rich spiritual heritage, a people who had the scriptures, a people who had Jesus and his followers ministering in their midst, Jesus says they will be held to a much higher standard. Those who have more light, those who have more opportunity are held more accountable. We see this fleshed out in verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Jesus mentions these two towns in the region of Galilee, and he compares them to two two cities that were part of the Phoenician uh, nation to the north, cities that were famous for their idolatry, famous for making and worshiping and exporting idols. Jesus says, you guys, you should know better. If, If they had heard, they would have believed. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes, but you won't. Jesus also calls out Capernaum, that city was, that was really the home base for his ministry in Galilee. He says, in you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, he tells his followers. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Capernaum thought they had a great thing going. They had a nice synagogue. They had a lot of good people there. They were proud. He says, will you be exalted into the heavens? 
Will you be lifted up? You have this high exalted view of yourself. It says, no, you're going to be brought low to the depths of destruction. There's a word of warning and judgment here. If you go back to Israel today, the town of Capernaum no longer exists. Many of the other cities around the Sea of Galilee do. Capernaum is just ruins. It's not there. This warning of the reality of judgment is really an essential part of faithful gospel ministry. We can't shy away from that. John the Baptist used the harvest metaphor in his preaching as well. Listen to what John said, speaking of the Messiah. In Luke chapter 3, verse 17, he said, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus preaches about judgment. John the Baptist preaches about judgment. The Apostle Paul preaches about future judgment as well. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people today who scoff and criticize what you might call uh, hellfire and brimstone preaching. I just wonder if they've ever read much of Jesus because he talks about this. I wonder if they've ever read much of Paul. Listen, warning people about the reality of hell, warning people about the coming judgment, that's not some weird revival tent gimmick. It's honest preaching. Yes, there's people who will be angry, people who will threaten, people who will wrongly preach the doctrine of hell. But the solution to that is not to stop preaching about judgment and hell. The solution is to do it the right way. And that's what Jesus instructs these people to do. He says, when they do not receive you, warn them of the judgment that is to come. You see, the coming of Christ's kingdom means salvation for those who believe, but it also means judgment. There is a day coming. There is a day of judgment that is coming. And those who reject the gospel are destined for that judgment. And that's not something we say lightly. That's not something we say in anger. That's not something we say with a smug face. This reality is a heavy one. But nevertheless, judgment is part and parcel of the message that we are tasked to proclaim. Our mission is not to tweak or improve or edit this message. We have to proclaim it. We offer people peace with God. We tell them of the hope of salvation, that they can be part of Christ's kingdom. And we also warn them of the deadly consequences of rejecting Christ. At this point, I have to just pause and recognize that it would be a tragedy for people in this room, people in this church, to hear gospel preaching, to hear the truth about Christ, to hear about the consequences of sin, to hear about the judgment that is coming, and to be like those towns, like Capernaum, like Bethsaida, like Chorazin, towns that rejected the good news even though they heard it explicitly. Listen, the danger for you, if you're hearing my voice this morning, is that if you reject the gospel and you go to your death unrepentant and unbelieving, you will be held to a higher standard than people who never heard. That's not a threat from me. That's not trying to scare anyone. I'm pleading with you, just being honest. This is what scripture teaches. And I don't know what your reasons are for saying I'm not interested in this gospel. And I don't have to. All I can do is offer you peace with God. Through the death of Christ, you can be made right with God. All I can do is tell you good news, that there's hope for you. You can be part of this kingdom that Christ is bringing. You can experience salvation and eternal life if you will repent and believe. All I can do is warn you that if you reject the clear preaching of the gospel of Jesus, you will be held to a higher standard and you will be judged. That's just what scripture tells us. That's the message, and it doesn't change. As we proclaim the truth about Jesus and his gospel, some people will reject us. But Jesus says if they do, that's simply because they're rejecting Jesus. Verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. A rejection of this message is a rejection of Christ, and it's a rejection of God himself who sent his son to bring salvation. So those who reject us, it's really not about us. It's an issue between them and God. 
and he will deal justly with those who reject him. And he will bring mercy and grace and salvation to those who believe. As followers of Christ, we are called to participate in the ministry of the gospel. And we do this, first of all, by praying. We pray that the Lord would send out labors into the harvest. If you're one of those who has very few opportunities to interact with lost people, you're still part of this mission. Pray. Pray earnestly, Jesus says. We're to do this in faith. We engage in this mission, trusting God to protect us, trusting God to provide for us. We fulfill this mission by engaging with people. We have to talk to people. We have to go to where the people are. And we do this by sharing the message that he has given us, not a message that we come up with. So the simple question is, are you participating in that mission? This is skipping ahead a little bit, but look ahead at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. God works through people. And when we experience that great privilege of participating with Christ, being used by Christ, there is joy. I'm not trying to guilt everybody into the Great Commission as much as invite you in to participate in this great privilege. It's a great privilege, this mission. It's a mission with eternal consequences. It's a mission that's given to those who have been granted peace with God. A mission for those who have been graciously brought into his kingdom. So let's give ourselves to that mission and trust that God will use us as he sees fit in this ongoing work of the harvest. Lord, I want to ask this morning that you would not only grant us a proper understanding of this text, but I also ask that you would move our hearts. That in our hearts we would grasp the joyful privilege it is to get to participate in this calling. Pray that we would grasp the importance and the urgency of this mission. You told that group of 72 not to stop and talk with people on the way. There's an urgency there. Pray that you would give us in our own hearts a sense of urgency. Pray that you would strengthen our faith. If there is fear that keeps people from sharing the gospel, if they feel like a vulnerable lamb in the midst of wolves, I pray that they would trust you, that they would be bold with the gospel. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful with your message, not to tamper with it, not to tweak it, not to try to update it for the 21st century. Lord, we recognize your gospel is true and clear. It's powerful. Help us to, in faith, in humility, with gentleness, offer people peace with God, offer them hope of the good news, and also be honest with them about the dangers of rejecting Christ. Lord, you are the sovereign Lord over the harvest. And so we ask right now that you would bring more people in and that you would send out more laborers, that you would expand the workforce, that you would bring in a rich harvest. We know that we are often given the privilege of sowing and reaping, watering, but you're the one who gives the harvest. So it really depends on you far more than on our efforts, our faithfulness, we are so imperfect and inconsistent with this. But God, our confidence is that you are going to save sinners. And we rejoice that we get the privilege of participating in that process. So I pray that you'd glorify yourself in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.